Well, good morning. Well, it is great to see everyone. I, I, I want to especially say, hey, uh, college students, I see you around. Great to see you guys back. It's been too long, like four months, I think, since we've seen you. But it's great to have you guys back. And, uh, but all of you, thank you for being here today. Continue our series in the book of Acts. And post-college, by the way. Too. Great to see you back, too. Uh, in the book of Acts, in Acts chapter 12, is uh, we realize when we look in Acts chapter 12 that because Saul was converted, it didn't stop the persecution, did it? <laughs> it didn't do away with it. Matter of fact, what we're about to read here with Herod Agrippa the first, the grandson of Herod the Great, the one that ruled when Jesus was birthed. It's interesting that he, what we'll read here, he does something, and, and of course you'll see that he martyrs James, but he does it because he said that it pleased, the word says because he saw that it pleased the Jews. Obviously it's a political position he was in, a political climate to do things just to please those that you want to please, unfortunately, I think he probably despised the Jews, which is an interesting thing. He despised them, still he did this to please them. Let's read Acts chapter 12, verses 1 through 19. It was about this time the king, that King Herod arrested some who belonged to the church intending to persecute them. He had James, the brother of John, put to death with the sword. When he saw that this met with approval among the Jews, he proceeded to seize Peter also. This happened during the festival of unleavened bread. After arresting him, he put him in prison, handing him over to be guarded by the four squads of four soldiers each. He intended to bring him out for public trial after the Passover. So Peter was kept in prison, but the church was earnestly praying to God for him. The night before Herod was to bring him to trial, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers bound with two chains, and sentries stood at the guard entrance. Suddenly suddenly an angel of the Lord appeared, and a light shone on the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him up. Quick, get up, he said, and the chains chains fell off Peter's wrist. Then the angel said to him, put on your clothes and sandals, and Peter did so. Wrap your cloak around you and follow me, the angel told him. Peter followed him out of the prison, but he had no idea that what the angel was doing was really happening. He thought he was seeing a vision. They passed the first and second guards and came to the iron gate leading to the city. It opened for them by itself or automatically, and they went through. When they had walked through the the length of one street, suddenly the angel left him. Then Peter said said to himself, Now I know without doubt that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from Herod's clutches. And from everything the Jewish people were hoping would happen. When this had dawned on him, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, also called Mark, where many people were gathered and were praying. Peter knocked at the outer entrance, and a servant named Rhoda came to to answer the door. When she recognized Peter's voice, she was so overjoyed, she ran back without opening it and exclaimed, Peter is at the door. And what did they tell her? You're out of your mind. But she kept insisting that it was so. They said, it must be an angel. But Peter kept on knocking. 
And when they opened the door and saw him, they were astonished. Peter motioned with his hand for them to be quiet and described how the Lord had brought him out of prison. Tell James and the other brothers and sisters about this, he said. And then he left for another place. Now read this. James here is not the one who was martyred. James here, we believe, is Jesus' brother, who ultimately is kind of the lead pastor of Jerusalem by this point. So you just kind of know who that is. It's not the one who was martyred. We'll come back to in just a moment. Again, after he, Jesus' brother James became very prominent in the church. And he says that then Peter left for another place. It's kind of the exit for Peter now out of the book of Acts. He's mentioned one more time in Acts 15. But he's basically exiting, if you will, out of this. And we'll hear him, obviously, he writes a couple of books himself. We'll see it a few other places. But he's exiting off the stage. And then Paul's about to move into a more prominent role in the rest of the book of Acts. But verse 18, in the morning there was no small, uh, there was no small commotion among the soldiers understatement as to what had become of Peter after Herod had done a thorough search had had a thorough search made for him and did not find him he cross-examined the guards and ordered ordered that they be executed okay that would be that's a job the word says then he killed James the brother of John with the sword I want to step back a little bit because as I was reading this this week, one of the things that's going to be real easy to camp out, camp out on reading this scripture is the miracle and the prayer meeting. And we will talk about that. It would be real easy that that's where you stay. But as I read this, I thought, if you're not careful, you just kind of skip over this. Then he killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. And we talked about it a few weeks ago. We know that Stephen was the first Christian martyr. But James' death may have been for the early church, broke this illusion that the original 12 somehow or another had this divine protection. Of the original 12, James was the first to be martyred. And if you know the scripture, James and, and, and along with his brother John and with Peter, uh, you know, they were a part of Jesus' inner circle. They were a part of the big three besides the Trinity. They were part of the first big three, okay? They were in that, they saw the transfiguration. They were in the garden. There, there were certain things that they got to do that nobody else got to do with Jesus. But here in Acts, we only see James mentioned in the upper room. And this one sentence in Acts 12. It's about his death. Scripture doesn't tell us what they were charged with for sure. But it is possible, I would say, if you are, if you are, are called the son of thunder, <laughs> which he and John were, and he actually one time asking Jesus to bring fire down on a village, that's literally what he did. There's a good chance he spoke before he thought. There's a good chance he was very vocal. There's a good chance he was not going to be quiet. So there's a lot of reasons. As a matter of fact, just hanging out with Peter could get you killed. Okay? There were a lot of reasons why they could be going on trial. But if the two apostles had been going on trial, just so you know this, a little background, if they'd have been going on trial because of something the Sanhedrin had brought down, a charge of blasphemy or heresy, the sentence would have probably have been death by stoning. But if the punishment of death was pronounced by the Roman government here by the king, 
probably a different type of execution. Of course, we know about the crucifixion. We know it's one of the most humiliating ways to die. The Romans perfected that. And they also wanted to let people hang out there and just see, uh, for, so people could see what the reality is of going against them. But the other thing that they did, and we say here died by the sword, most likely meant that he was beheaded, much like John the Baptist. This is one of the things I love about Scripture. If I'm writing Scripture and I want to people to get to join my movement, I'm not talking about my main people getting murdered. I'm just not doing it. What I love about Scripture is how honest and how the reality that you can carry all the way into 2017, the reality of following after Jesus is not just something that you're promised a, a life of security. You're just not promised that. I mean, on one hand, we could camp out, and we will here for a little bit, on the fact that Peter has this unbelievable miracle. An angel comes. And he's saved from execution for the time being. He's saved for the time being. And I would say we can assume Peter was going to be executed. It doesn't say initially. It it says he's just going to trial. But by his guards being executed, it tells us that if you were a guard during that time, if you were a detention officer, if you will, if you were that, if your prisoner escapes, you have to take on whatever their punishment was going to be. Now, that would, that, that, you wouldn't be standing in line for that job. So that tells us that Peter's going to be executed also. On one hand, we have the miracle of Peter. On the other hand, we have the execution of one of Jesus' inner circle without, without hardly any fanfare. One disciple gets a miracle. One disciple gets death. James being the first martyr, his brother gets to live the longest out of all of them. What's fair about that? Again, this illusion that the anointed or protected is getting blown up. Because they probably already thought that a little bit. I mean, you can go back to even John the Baptist, right? John the Baptist is about to be beheaded. Okay, what does he do? He sends a group to where? To Jesus. He sends his disciples to Jesus to say, Hey, uh, by the way, I'm about to lose my head. I just want to know. Are you the one or should we look for another? John was in prison. He's about to die for a cause. But John already knows, right? I mean, he, he, at, at Jesus' baptism... Uh, Jesus, I mean, here comes, you know, the Lamb of God. I'm not worthy of, uh, of really tying his hand. He knows who he is, but here he is under this critical moment. What? Just wanting to be sure. What does Jesus say back to him? This is in Matthew 11. If you want to look it up, you can note it later. He says, I am the God who heals, causes the blind to see, the deaf to hear, the God who makes the leper clean. I'm the God who can make the lame walk, and I'm also the God who is not going to stop Herod from killing you. 
I am the God who calls you to die on my behalf. Because this is why I can add that little part, even though it's not word for word. This is what Jesus says as kind of a tagline as he says, I am telling the blind see, the, the lame walk, that he adds this line, Blessed is the one who does not fall away on account of me. Blessed is the one who's able to stay true to the end. Blessed is the one who, when it all comes on you, when there's potential that you may even lose your head over this, blessed is the one. You've prayed the prayers. Why does one get a miracle? Why does one die? And it may not have anything to do with martyrdom. You know that. It's a sickness. A person dies young. Another person who's even evil lives to be old. Perplexing. It's good news today on this. I don't have an answer for you. Except to say this. If your mindset is that God's here for all my protection, He's here for all my, then you've got the wrong mindset. He's here to use us. He's here to use us in an unbelievable way for us to be fulfilled in a way that we never thought we could be fulfilled. Let's go on to a better subject, right? Peter's released from prison. And... A couple of things about this passage, part of the passage that strikes me is this. Peter knows that James has died. No doubt he would know that at this point, right? He's arrested. Now he's in prison, and they've put more guards around him. They've put more, they've like four times what you normally would do. They have, they are making sure. And guess what Peter does? Goes to sleep. Apparently, so deep in sleep that when he's awakened, he's startled. Now, Peter, again, we know from a few weeks ago, Peter is used to seeing visions. So it wouldn't be surprising for him to go, okay, the blanket comes, the sheet came down, and all this kind of, okay, he's been there, done that. And God used it in a powerful way. But this time he's going, okay, I'm just imagining things, but he's in a deep sleep. He's so deep, he thinks maybe he's just dreaming, but he's startled. You wonder at that point if Peter goes back to, if you, if you see the account of Jesus interacting with Peter in John 21, when Jesus is telling Peter, when he's asking three times, do you love me, Peter? Do you love me? Do you, do you love me? And, of course, we've said before, Peter had to do a lot of threes. There's a lot of threes around Peter's life, if you look. When Jesus begins to explain to Peter, when you're an old man, when ultimately at some point you're going to be, you're going to die without your consent, if you will. Somebody's going to kill you, going to martyr you. And he looks at John, right? He looks at John and says, what about him? What about the other guy over here like we all want to do, right? When if God says, this is your plan, this is your route, you go, well, yeah, okay, I really don't like, what about that guy's plan? And Jesus says, if I want him to live forever, what's that to you? Read it. That's what he says. And John ultimately does outlive all the rest of them. So you wonder in that moment if Peter's got this going through his head at that time going, hey, I knew this was coming. 
Jesus told me. He's already prophesied that over me. So I can just go to sleep at night because Jesus, the Son of God, God himself told me personally this was happening and I don't have to worry about a thing. So I'm just going to sleep. Peter obeyed without really knowing what was happening. And what I love about this story, about Peter's part of it is, I'm just going to go ahead and follow God and follow his plan and follow this vision, and I'll figure out the details later. (laughs) I just know he's given me this avenue to begin to walk it out. So I'm just going to start... That door opened, that door opened, that door opened. These chains fell off. I can't explain it. I don't even know what the details are. All I know is it keeps happening, and I'm going to continue to walk. And he says he got out on the street. The angel left, and he's looking around going, what? Okay, this must, God must have been up to something. That's about all he knew, right? It's about all he knew at that moment is go, God did this. <laughs> but this is what he also knew, Right? He knew there was a prayer meeting going on. He knew the people well enough. He knew the people. He knew the people there in Jerusalem. He knew what they were doing. He knew they were praying. And not just praying. They were praying earnestly. So what does he do? He heads over to Mary's house. But you wonder what they were praying, right? I bet you they prayed earnestly for James. He's dead. So we're now they praying, were they praying for a miracle for, for Peter to be released? I'm going to guess maybe not. What I think they may be guessing there, and they may have even already heard Peter's story about Jesus talking to him, you know, at, at breakfast that day. He, he, they already know about this. Maybe at that point they are praying, give him boldness. Give him courage. Let him look the executioner in the eye and bless them and show them grace and show what Jesus looks like with skin on. That's what I'm praying for. I'm not even sure they prayed for his release. Because it doesn't say. What is interesting, though, is we know they're praying in earnest, and I'll talk about that in just a moment. But when he shows up at Mary's house, the mother of John, Mark, and, we, and we'll, there he'll be talked about more over the next many weeks at some point. The girl freaks out, Rhoda, Knocking on the door. I don't know what that looks like. A gate. Knock, knock. She's just beside herself. Runs in the house. Hey, and, and says, hey, Peter's at the door. And they go, no, no, no. It's probably his angel. What? I read that and going, you won't believe that Jesus can release him or uh, God can deliver him from prison, but you'll believe his angel shows up at your front door. It's just a strange comment there, isn't it? We can't believe it's Peter, but we can believe it's his guardian angel. Because they had this belief that guardian angels were, everybody had basically a guardian angel, and they resembled who you were. Like a stunt double. You know? I see something. A stunt double. Uh, They just kind of took things on that the other one didn't want to. 
I'm reading that, I'm going, angels in general, and Scripture says sometimes we entertain angels without even knowing. Oh, yeah, that one, that, that, I thought this before, I don't know if you've ever done this, that person on the street corner that you decide just to ignore totally, I don't mean you had to give them money or anything, but you decide not to even look at them like there were no humans. Who knows, that could have been an angel God going, okay, I'm just going to test you here. I'm not saying it is. But are there times we entertain angels? But this situation is, the word says that an angel showed up in prison. And walked him out. Then after meeting there, the word says, and we'll get back into the earnest part of this in just a minute. They meet there. He says, hey, let James know that I'm out. Let let James, kind of the lead pastor, let him know that this has happened. Tell him the story because I actually need to leave town. (laughs) Because it says he hunted for him. Okay. We don't even know where he went really at that point. It just says he basically exits out of Acts at that point. Except for one other mention later. And like I said, Paul then moves to center stage after this chapter. Earnestly. Verse 3, I I mean verse 5. So Peter was kept in prison, but the church was earnestly praying to God for him. Earnestly. First off, I'll say this. Aren't you glad that God listens even our most feeble prayers? (laughs) That we believe He listens even when it's weak and it's not very wholehearted. But earnest here means they, they cared passionately about the situation. It almost was something so connected to them that they... Have you ever been in those points where you pray about a list and you kind of go, you do a head prayer, okay, you do those. But then there's those moments you're praying because it's personal, because of your connection to that person. It's so deep and so strong. You are so, you're on your face before the Lord. It is earnest. I think what happens, and we've got to be careful with this, I think what happens sometimes is we have the attitude of wanting God to care about things we really don't care too much about. In other words, I want to bring this to God to hand it off to Him so I can move on. Ever done that? I'm just going to go ahead and throw it up before you, God. That way now it's on your back. Now, I don't have to answer for it anymore. It's on you. And it is on Him. But we really didn't care enough when we brought it to Him. Really. To be earnest, though, I love what James 5.16 says, confess your faults to one another and pray for one another that ye may be healed. And this is King James. The effectual, fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. Why is holiness so important inside the kingdom? Why is it so, we talk about us wanting to grow and become more and more like Christ? Because we believe our prayer changes when that happens. Because the word says the fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. Doesn't mean prayers of other people that are not trying to live it out or whatever doesn't come through and it doesn't count. It just fervent prayers of righteous people have a big impact. 
but zeal towards this particular thing. For the presence of an almighty God to be involved in what, first, him allowing you to be involved would be the first thing, that you get to be part of the solution. Still amazes me. That's why community is so important inside of a church. And I know I fail miserably as a leader trying to do all that I need to do. But we still believe that when you're in community and you rub shoulders with people and you know they're broken, it's like the broken vessels. When you know those kind of things, you will pray for them differently. You will carry that weight differently than if you just read it on a prayer list someday. Oh, yeah, I know them. I saw them. I spoke to them Sunday. High five them. Go on. But you don't have a relationship. There's no connection. You don't know their story. And I'm not saying you quit praying for those, even if you're in that situation. That's not what I'm saying. Don't hear what I'm not saying. What I'm saying is let's just be real careful handing things off to God. When he's really put it on our heart to pray earnestly, fervently, with zeal, with passion about something. The whole idea of angels and God answering through angels, I know, seems a little far-fetched at times to some of you this day and age. At that time, it probably didn't seem as strange when it was written, but today we don't talk about it much. We don't really know, even though we would say, are there angels as Christians? Yeah, we, we, you know, we could talk through that. Billy Graham wrote a book on it many, many years ago about angels, and there's a lot of things we could talk about there. But I grew up with a story that had to do with angels that I heard it from as early as I can understand it until... I was in my 50s. My dad, many of you know, uh, was a battlefield medic. I've told the story many times here. He's a battlefield medic in World War II. He was in North Africa at first. Then he was in the, uh, the march to, to Rome, coming from Salerno Beachhead and marching towards uh, Rome and came upon, I guess he came upon, he knew he was coming into it, uh, Casino Italy and the battle of the Abbey at Monte Cassino. One of the most deadly, you can look it up, one of the most deadly battles in the World War II. It was one of the most bombed places. And I won't go into all the story uh, about my dad and what his decision was to be a medic and all that. I can share with you another time. But my dad was there on the field that night, a devout Christian. They were on the battlefield and they, were, they knew what they were about to push towards and the Germans had, had really been... They had locked themselves in. They'd cut all the trees off the side of the mountain. The abbey was setting up there high. Uh, and that's what they, but they could not bomb it because they had had kind of a, an agreement with the Catholic Church where they couldn't do that because of artifacts and pictures, I mean, uh, the, the, uh, uh, portraits and everything that was in there. A lot of story behind it. My brother a few years ago wrote a book. It's before my dad passed away in 2010. I uh, wrote a book about my dad just called A Soldier's Journey. And the night of... Uh, I'm going to read some of it this morning. I don't know if it will be of help to you or not. But I hope it will be. And the idea of both of the things we've talked about this morning. Because what we know is, I'm here today. That means my dad got to come home. 
but thousands upon thousands upon thousands upon thousands upon thousands and hundreds of thousands did not come home. We all agree on that, right? I don't know why that works that way. I don't know how all that happens. I just know my dad did come home because I'm here today. My dad that night, actually it was January 24th, 1944. He hadn't changed clothes in 36 days. Uh, hadn't taken a bath or anything because they'd been marching, marching, freezing. You're in January in Italy in the mountains, so it's not real comfortable, to be honest with you. But that night before, he'd been praying. And he was sitting in the foxhole, and as he was praying... He'd been wanting to go home. He just, you know, he'd been there a year and a half, whatever the amount of time. I can't remember exactly what the time frame was, but it was horror. You know, after zipping up body bags after body bags and doing that over and over, doing amputations in the dark, literally in the dark. You do amputations in the dark with just your hands and your feel. That's how they did it. Because you couldn't turn a light on in the middle of a battlefield, could you? Or you're done. So those stories are all in there and stories about from, from the time he left the cotton field all the way to the battlefield. But this particular night, he's praying. He's praying in the foxhole that God would take care of him. He's praying for his mom and dad. And it's, it end up being 12 kids in their family. He's praying for his family. Hadn't seen him at this point in about a year and a half. To, and so in the little town of Granis, Arkansas. Don't put that one up yet. I'll show you that in just a second. But all of a sudden, his hand comes down on his right leg. Grasp his right leg. And he just grabs it. He didn't know why. Had never done it before. Grabs his right leg. Let's go of it. And there's just this peace that flooded him and said, you're going home. You're going to go home. He didn't know what it meant. But the next night, January 24th, normally what they do, they rotate through medics. Daddy's, at this point, is the only medic left out of his company that came into North Africa. All the rest of them have been killed. He was the only one left out of his company that had come into North Africa a few years before or a year or so before. He's the only one left. That night, he decided he wanted to be the first medic out there because they, they do usually rotate it, but as soon as they got out there, as soon as they said, we need a medic, we need a medic, he hops up, takes his bag, he goes. It's in the dark, he's out there, realizes he's going to have to, now I'm not going to tell you all the details, but he's having to amputate a young man's foot uh, who was only hanging on by skin. He's out there doing that in the dark, okay? And he's, got his, he's down on one knee, got his other leg behind him, and someone steps on a landmine behind him. Blows him into a tree which had been cut down. Not a tree like high as all these had been cut down. And I could get into the story about what the next four days. He laid out there from to 24th. He was there all day 25th, all day 26th, and on the 27th. He worked his way back. He kept digging his way back, digging his way back, digging his way back. He ends up behind a hay bale next to one of his friends that he had had, uh, uh, a guy named Joe. And I know his last name, but I won't say it here. But... Uh, and he had been shell-shocked, and his head was so swelled up, still screaming. And Daddy laid there next to him, and he ended up dying. Uh, Joe did. And so here's where I want to start reading. So now he's been dazed now, working his way back. His leg dragging his leg, because that, that was the biggest thing that got hit when that happened. It says, and this is my brother writing as he interviewed my dad. It says, with his utility belt and backpack missing, he was left with no medical supplies to help himself, nor did he have any food to keep his strength up as he continued to wait. After some time had passed, and with hunger getting worse, with his friend lying nearby, he took the chocolate bar, survivor bar, from Joe's backpack and ate it, and he said he knew his friend would not have minded. Having been wounded late on the night of January 24th, 
1944, the 25th, the 26th, the 27th, and the 28th had all passed. And the morning of January 29th arrived. He still believed he would survive the ordeal, but had little reason to believe the 29th would be any different from the past days, but it would. The weather was still cloudy. He had not seen the sun the entire time. He had been on the ground. But on this, been on, but on this morning, he looks towards the train tracks which he had crossed going into the battlefield. He thought he saw two heads pop up over the tracks and felt sure they were Americans. There, were no, there was no way of knowing what the soldiers were looking at or looking for, but it was an opportunity to try to get someone's attention. As he had done several times over the days while laying on the ground, he stuck a dirty handkerchief on the end of a short stick and with his left hand began waving the best he could. But he wasn't sure the soldiers saw him. After several moments he passed, had passed, he saw the two soldiers heading his direction. They were carrying no weapons or gear with them and were walking three to four hundred feet as straight as an arrow towards the haystack. Dad said he could see, tell by looking at the two that they had not been there long, for their uniforms were as clean as if they had just washed them and they, had no, they did not have the appearance of soldiers who had been on the battlefield. They did not waver as, they, as the German machine gunners shot beside them as they walked towards him. He could see the red tracer bullets zip past the two soldiers and thought it was obvious the Germans were not trying to hit them. They were letting them know they were watching. Once at the haystack, they were not sure who had, who had signaled them for several soldiers were laying by, but the others had passed away. When one of the soldiers asked the other, which one is it? Dad said he tried to speak and his lips were moving, but he was sure he was not speaking loud enough for them to hear. So he began blinking his eyes, moving his lips, moving his left hand. And after checking a couple of soldiers nearby, they discovered it was he who had signaled them. He was thankful they had come to get him, while at the same time aware of the reality of war. And after they picked him up and his head was near the ear of one of the soldiers, he whispered, you're going to get yourself killed doing this. He said, to the, he said the soldier replied as if there was not, he was not concerned in the least bit about their safety, for he answered, no, we're not going to die. He could not remember them stepping over the, he could not remember them stepping over the wide irrigation ditch we had, which he had had to cross. And they began the trip back across the open area and exposed the German guns. Despite his right elbow and shoulder being injured, each soldier had one of his arms slung across their shoulder. As they walked towards the line, Dad could continue, again hear the machine guns, gunners firing. He could see that the red tracer bullets passing by them, but the two soldiers never flinched. Midway across the field, they had to stop so they could lay him across their arms. And as they did, the firing from behind them continued. And they continued on. Once they got behind the lines, the two soldiers carried him to the nearest aid station, laid him down, and they had to go, walked off without another word, and Dad would never know who they were. Dad said for years, ever since then, they were two angels. They didn't look like anybody else he'd ever seen on the battlefield. They walked with confidence that, no, we're not going to die here. And really nobody, I think it says later that he asked around there, they didn't even know who they were. Dad in the field hospital. When they finally went to do surgery on his right leg, the doctor told him, when you wake up, son, you will not have your right leg. And he woke up to his surprise, his right leg was still there. And my dad, as those who know him, had a scar from there to there, that wide and about that deep the rest of his life. He learned how to roller skate at 60. He used to run seven, eight miles a day. He was a pretty unbelievable man. I don't know why he made it and hundreds of thousands died. But what I want to trace back to is this.
And it's an exact paragraph. It says, but on this night, things would not be the same as they had been so many other nights. For as he was praying, his right hand unexplainedly came down and tightly grasped his right thigh. The exact location where his right leg would be shattered a short time later. After his prayer was finished, he said he felt a feeling of complete peace that came over him. But here's what I want you to hear. And as we would learn when he returned home, Grandpa was praying for him at the exact same time. A few days after he had been wounded, some old, someone told Grandpa his son had been listed as killed or missing in action by one of the newspapers or some report. But Grandpa refused to believe the bad news and it is said his son was alive and would come home. And he did. Show the prayer meeting. I don't know if you know where Granis, Arkansas, town of 79 people, I think, and Casino, Italy. When you're praying earnestly and there's something at stake, you pray differently. When you're connected to people and they mean something and you rub shoulders and you've heard their, their broken stories and you know them, you pray differently. I'm not saying if you're not there right now not to quit, don't quit praying, but I'm just saying there is something about this earnest, fervent prayer of a righteous man that avails much. And I don't know if God will use an angel. <laughs> I don't know if God would use a miracle of some way to heal somebody that's unexplainable. And I can't explain why some die and some get a miracle. But my suspect is, though, when we pray with all of our heart, God will use whatever He needs to use to do what only He can do. I just want to encourage you. I know for some of you, you've prayed and prayed, and they were not healed. And you've prayed and prayed, and some were healed. But we've got to keep praying. Why do I pray for God to heal people? Because I know He can. I just believe He can. And sometimes our prayer, we've almost given up. Because I have a feeling that church at Mary's, or that prayer meeting at Mary's house was more, God, help Peter die with boldness and courage and reflect who you are instead of, Hey, send an angel in. Let him walk out. <laughs> Pray bold prayers. Pray fervently. Pray earnestly. As if it mattered to you. And let God figure out the rest of it. Let's just sign him to come back as we close. Early on as a kid, like I said, it's easy for me to believe in angels because when you see somebody standing in front of you, <laughs> that that's the only explanation, at least close to the only explanation. It expands your faith. I just want us to close today and give you an opportunity to come. Some of you, one of the things I love about this is that 
we could have used the illustration, obviously, of being in a prison yourself in the sense of trapped. And how are you praying? Are you already given up? Well, God's willing to loosen the chains and loosen all those hindrances to keep you from getting out of there. He's already in motion, just waiting for you to get up and walk out. Would you stand with me if you if you're able if you're able? We're going to sing. I think broken vessels. We're going to sing that again. You just let the Lord lead you. You may just want to sing. It's amazing grace. thank God for what he's done in your life and taking these broken pieces and he's making something beautiful out of it let him use this time as he will Lord help us right now allow your spirit to move in us and through us either to be used for others or you to camp out in us for a season just to say let's breath and be at peace with who we are because we're at peace with you. We love you. Use this time as you will. In Jesus' name.